Every once in a while, and we try to do this at least once a year, we have our friends from International Justice Mission come and instruct us, teach us, try to mold those hearts, give us some information about what's going on in the world with regard to the issue of justice and uh, rightness uh, in the world. And today is that day where IJM, as it's called, or International Justice Mission, uh, sends a representative here. This is, uh, we have Jocelyn White with us here today, and she's gonna come up in just a second uh, to preach, right after you see a video that she's brought, um, brought with her. But the reason we have Justin, uh, excuse me, Jocelyn uh, here today is because so many of you wrote after she was here last year and said, wow, she was really good. Why don't you bring her back? We'd love to have her back. And we've had several people from IJM through the years, but we feel like now we have, uh, and they've all been great, but we have this friend that's sort of a, uh, more than a guest uh, here in our, in our place and with our people. And we love her and uh, glad to have her back today. So she's gonna bring the word, quite a challenging word. And keep thinking of that theme, that statement. If it's not okay with God, why is it okay with me? And there's this old phrase that I remember. Oh, familiarity, you know the phrase familiarity breeds content, a contempt? And I had someone twisted on it to change contempt with content. You see something long enough, over and over and over again, and your sense of indignation about it dissipates. Familiarity also breeds, breeds content, and we've got to fight against that. Jocelyn's here to help us think through that again. But before she actually speaks, let's watch this video from International Justice Mission. Good morning. Last week, I just had a few days with a number of my colleagues from the field at our yearly global prayer gathering. And so I just spent time with some of our clients and some of our colleagues, and we just called upon God in three days of prayer. And it's so wonderful to be welcomed back to another warm family, the Marine Covenant family, again this Sunday. And thank you so much for your continued kindness and hospitality and generosity to just invite me for just a short portion of your year. Before I go on about uh, what I wanted to share today, I also wanted to say if you are thinking about seeing uh, or going to the Jay and Catherine Wolf event, I want to encourage you women out there to go. They are an extremely powerful couple. A few years ago when she had her stroke, I was part of a youth, uh, excuse me, a small group that asked people to provide lunches at the hospital and their journey has been amazing. And if you want a boost to your faith and the power of God, you'll definitely not want to miss that event. So it's been about a year since I've been here and so quite a few things have changed. My son is now five and three quarters years old. And just recently, we brought in uh, eight-week-old Noble and 12-week-old Tawny to join our family. They were two young rescues. We were only going to get one, and then Tawny sat on my husband's lap, and that was it. So we ended up with two, and so as you can imagine, our house is quite busy. And before I came here, I asked Simeon, what made a good mommy? And so he said, a good mommy gives kisses and cuddles and she tells people to play nice, and she takes care of the kids. So as a mom, I often think about what are those values that I want to instill in my little son, and while I was pregnant, my husband and I came up with a list of a bunch of things that we hope to, to share with him over the years, and so I wanted to share with you three of them this morning. 
The first being to be the defender of the weak, to show compassion and generosity, and to grasp the goodness of God despite circumstances. And though it will be a long life journey of really grasping those concepts, I know I'm still trying to grasp all of those concepts. I know God is faithful along that journey. And one story that sticks out to me as a good illustration of those characteristics is found in Exodus chapter 2. So if you have your Bibles with you, please turn to Exodus chapter 2. For those of you who actually have an actual Bible, it's the second book in the Old Testament, so Genesis and then Exodus. And we'll start in Exodus chapter 2, and we're going to read about some women who demonstrate what it looks like to defend the weak, to be compassionate and generous, and find contentment in seeing God's goodness despite their circumstances. Now a man of the house of Levi married a Levite woman, and she became pregnant and gave birth to a son. When she saw that he was a fine child, she hid him for three months, and when she could hide him no longer, she got a papyrus basket for him and coated it with tar and pitch. Then she placed the child in it and put it among the reeds along the bank of the Nile. His sister stood at a distance to see what would happen to him. Then Pharaoh's daughter went down to the Nile to bathe, and her attendants were walking along the river bank. She saw the basket among the reeds and sent her slave girl to get, in, to get it. She opened it and saw the baby. He was crying, and she felt sorry for him. This is one of the Hebrew babies, she said. Then his sister asked Pharaoh's daughter, Shall I go and get one of the Hebrew women to nurse the baby for you? Yes, go, she answered. And the girl went and got the baby's mother. Pharaoh's daughter said to her, Take this baby and nurse him for me, and I will pay you. So the woman took the baby and nursed him. And when the child grew older, she took him to Pharaoh's daughter, and he became her son. She named him Moses, saying, I drew him out of the water. And here ends the reading of the scriptures. Upon reading this passage, I observed three women that are enduring extremely difficult situations. First, Pharaoh's daughter, Moses' mom, and Moses' sister. So let's first talk about Pharaoh's daughter. She knows that her father has ordered all Hebrew baby boys to be killed. In Exodus 1, it says, Pharaoh gave this order to all his people. Every boy that is born, you must throw him into the Nile, but let every girl live. However, when she discovers this little baby crying in a basket floating on the Nile, she's moved to compassion. She agreed to have him fed by a Hebrew woman. And I think that as she watches this Hebrew woman nurse the baby, she is torn. She wants this baby to survive but she doesn't even know how to begin to speak to her father, King Pharaoh. She makes a deal with the Hebrew woman to nurse the baby and keep him alive. Now, I don't know about you, but this is an absolute miracle. Pharaoh's daughter decides to go behind her own father's back, the king's back, and keep a Hebrew baby boy alive. Now, this had to be very scary and very risky for her, but she was committed to keeping the baby alive, and she eventually takes the child into her own home and raises him as her own. And now let's look back at Exodus 2 and consider Moses' mom. Imagine giving birth to a perfectly healthy baby boy and immediately panic out of fear because you know he is to be killed simply for being a boy, no fault of his own or your own. Now, it says that she hid the baby for three months. For those of you who have had children, I don't know about you, but my child, he, Simeon, he cried 
all the time when he was three months old. I mean, he never slept. He just cried. And so it, she probably went to great complexities to actually hide her baby boy. There was no inviting family and friends to meet your new wonder. There was only the panic of trying to figure out how to keep him quiet and, and hidden. Then imagine her heartache when she realizes he's just too big to hide. And just when he is beginning to smile at her, she makes this heart-wrenching decision to let him go. In these last hours, she sings to him his favorite lullaby, maybe wraps him up in his favorite linen cloth, and she prays over him and just weeps and just begs God as she sends him out into the Nile, vulnerable to the wild, that someone would find him and protect him and take care of him. Now, I want to pause for a moment because I know some of you have had to let your child go in some way. I mean, I feel like I have to let my son go every day I drop him off at school. But some of you really relate to Moses' mom in a very visceral way. So perhaps maybe you pray that God would provide a family to love your child and care for your child in the way that you could not. Or maybe your child went away to the military or a job or got married. Or perhaps your child's life ended prematurely on earth. Or maybe you even had to let go of having a child. Or maybe you miss your mom. In the end, we have to come to terms that there is actually nothing that we can do to change the circumstances for our children or us. And I think it's in this place where we long and we ache that we can allow God to comfort us and serve us in this completely unique way. In the moment where Moses' mom feels her dreams of raising her son are shattered, in comes her daughter. Her daughter grabs her by the hand, and she can barely blurt out questions because they're running so fast. And she realizes that she's headed towards the Nile again and can't figure out why would her daughter bring her back to this horrible place. And then all of a sudden, you hear your baby boy crying. And as she strains to see beyond the tears and sees Pharaoh's daughter, she sees Pharaoh's daughter trying to really help this boy try to settle down and stop crying. And Pharaoh's daughter is so desperate that she sees this Hebrew woman and says, can you just please try to nurse him? And Moses' mom tries to keep all of her emotions together and embraces her sweet baby boy, and she begins to nurse him. And she sighs, and Pharaoh's daughter sighs, but for very two different reasons. Pharaoh's daughter looks at this Hebrew woman and says, can you please just nurse him and keep him alive? She just needs time to work out things with her father. So Moses' mom agrees. She continues to nurse the child and raise him, knowing that one day she will again need to surrender him to Pharaoh's daughter. Will he be raised to hate his own people, and how would she ever deal with that? And it turns out that Pharaoh welcomes this child into his own home and actually asks this woman, this Hebrew woman, to be his nursemaid. So Moses' mom is again given the opportunity to stay with her child. And though things aren't the way that she dreamt, she still would continue to demonstrate sacrificial love for her child. Now, I can't imagine what it would be like to raise your own child without them knowing that you were their parent. In fact, the name that you gave him at birth is not even the name the new parents 
have, have given him or call him. But as my son mentioned, she could still give kisses and cuddles, tell him to play nice, and take care of him. Lastly, I want to look at Moses' sister. And in many ways, I think she was complicit in keeping her baby boy quiet or hidden during those first three months, or her baby brother, excuse me. And so she, her mom tells her that she has to let him go, and she does not want to let her brother go, and she doesn't want to see her mother in such despair. So she decides to take matters into her own hands. She watches her brother go down the Nile, and when she sees Pharaoh's daughter pick up her brother, she seizes the opportunity to provide her services in helping to find a Hebrew woman to nurse him. I think she is quite the clever one, don't you? She is aware of the great suffering of her people and has witnessed baby boys being ripped out of their mother's arms and killed. She can't stand the violence and she must act to protect her brother. And she seems to be conducting herself with great courage and almost complete disregard for her own safety. As I mentioned earlier, I hope to help my son grasp the goodness of God despite his circumstances. But what do you think is the most difficult thing for people to believe about the Christian faith? I think the hardest thing for people to believe about the Christian faith is that God is good because they're in so much pain. Pastor Art and a few others led us through this great series on sharing Christ's love with those around us and in the workplace in the This Time Tomorrow series. And it was a great challenge to share our faith and as a continuation, I want you to consider how you may bring Christ's love to those who are experiencing great violence in our world and will continue to this time tomorrow. Psalm 10 says, They sit in ambush in the villages. In hiding places, they murder the innocent. Their eyes stealthily watch for the helpless. They lurk in secret like a lion in its cover. They lurk that they may seize the poor. They seize the poor and drag them off in their net. And this is a reality for a staggering number of people in our world, those in our midst, in our community, and throughout the developing world. See, all three women in Exodus 2 lived in a place of great violence and oppression. Baby boys were senselessly being murdered and Hebrews enslaved enduring horrific abuse and degradation. But despite all of this, these women decided to act heroically, become protectors, providers, advocates, and nurturers for the most innocent, a child. These women remind me of some of my colleagues, especially my colleague, Jessica. And before I go into her story, just a quick reminder, or for those who may be new about, uh, I wanted to share a little bit about IJM. IJM is a global ministry that works to protect the poor from everyday violence. And our vision is to rescue thousands, to protect millions, and prove that justice for the poor is possible. So in all of our 17 field offices throughout the world, we have Christian investigators, lawyers, social workers, community activists, and other professionals working to protect the poor from everyday violence. And so now about Jessica. We knew we wanted to address child sexual assault in Guatemala. When we first started exploring, it was known that there are great numbers of child sexual assault victims, and, they were, and child sexual assault was done with great impunity. So we set out to find a Guatemalan lawyer to lead us through these efforts. And because the work was so dangerous, one of our interview questions was, are you willing to die for our casework? 
much different from my interview at IJN. <laughs> so as you can imagine, everybody said no. Everybody, except Jessica. On top of all that, Guatemala is the fifth most violent country in the world, has a third highest rate for child murder. And when we first arrived, 95% of child sexual assault cases didn't even end in a verdict. So when we spoke to the government about opening up an office, they said, sure, go ahead, thinking we would be gone in about a couple of months because of the violence. Because did you know for girls and women ages 15 to 44, gender violence puts us at greater risk of physical death or harm than motor accidents, malaria, cancer, and war combined. And as a prosecutor, Jessica would be responsible for trying child sexual assault cases, which, is me which means in Guatemala that you are also an investigator. And she would have to investigate places like the Red Zone, notorious for its violence, its drug trafficking. Psalm 10 says, you hear, O Lord, the desire of the afflicted. You encourage them and listen to their cry, defending the fatherless and the oppressed in order that man who is of the earth may strike terror no more. How are the millions of children who endure sexual violence going to believe that God is good? In fact, what is our role in addressing violence against men, women, and children? The Bible says in Micah 6, 8, what does the Lord require of you? but to seek justice, to love mercy, and to walk humbly before our God. Because there are about 36 million people who are enslaved today, which is about the entire population of the state of California. And included in this 36 million are men, women, and children enduring the same kind of slavery the Hebrews endured. Last year, we opened up an office in Ghana, Ghana has a population of about 25 million people that live on about $2 a day. And so we sent a couple of investigators to determine the nature of forced child labor on Lake Volta. Now, Lake Volta is the largest man-made lake in the entire world. And so in just a few short weeks of investigations, they discovered that about 2,000 adults and children were part of the fishing industry, and that 59% of them were children believed to have been trafficked. Boys who should have been in kindergarten were instead working 12 plus hours a day, seven days a week. Their legs were covered in thick scars from motor accidents and dangerous fish, and their hands were calloused from all the, the pulling of rope and mending of nets. Their bodies were malnourished, yet had overly developed muscles from years of manual labor. One of our investigators vividly remembered meeting Gabriel. And in case you're wondering, that little symbol means, please, can you not take any pictures of this image for the safety of Gabriel and our field staff? Our investigators were posing as executives from the fishing industry. But despite the danger, Gabriel demonstrated great courage. When his slave master was talking to one of the investigators, he said to the other, please take me away from this wicked man. He has been beating me for over 10 years. And our investigator had no choice but to refuse. And when he did, Gabriel lifted the shirt of the young boy next to them and said, look, he's starting to beat the young ones too. And the little boy appeared to be about five years old. Please take us away from this wicked man. 
Now, those words haunted our investigator for over a year, and we prayed that God would provide us a way to rescue Gabriel. How are Gabriel and the thousands of young boys that are forced to work on Lake Volta going to believe that God is good? Now, since we are longtime friends, I wanted to share a video with you that's very personal to myself and to my colleagues. This is a video of an operation, and again, I ask you to please not record either our audio or visually this video. I'm also going to ask that as you watch the video, he's going to be, Gabriel's going to be referred to as a different name, and that's because we use pseudonyms to protect our clients and our field staff. So if you are going to share about this story on social media, I kindly ask that you use the name Gabriel in doing so. Let's watch. One thing I didn't tell the first service is that Ghanaians are deathly afraid of water. There are a lot of superstitions, so they never go into the water for recreation at all. And so when we conducted the rescue operations, those boys had never seen a life jacket in their life. And so it was a really powerful moment, as you could imagine, for them and for our staff. And when we initially start to open up an office in a specific country, one of the things we try to identify are local aftercare homes we can partner with. And so this is where we met Father Matthew. Father Matthew, I kid you not, his smile can light up this entire auditorium. And he has more energy than my five-year-old, and that's a lot of energy. <laughs> And with establishing aftercare partners in a new area, there's just this period of uncertainty, right? So we ask them if they're committed to protecting our clients, but it's another thing when we ask them to do that in very difficult situations. So last June, I took a group of pastors to Ghana to encourage our staff and to meet our clients. When we met our clients, I remembered first being struck by just how small they were. They were the size of my own five-year-old son and their hands were rough. And I just remember anger and despair just rising up in me. But in just a few short seconds, it all changed when they would start to smile and when they laughed, and for some reason they thought I was really great at folding paper airplanes. As we drove away, we all shared what a sense of relief that now these boys are no longer being abused every day. They can finally eat, they can finally rest, and now they're on a journey of freedom and restoration. But you know, this all changed the next morning. As we were packing our vans to head out to Lake Volta, our field office director collected our team together, and he notified us that the police were on their way to get the boys. We didn't know why, they just said, we're coming to get them. This is totally against the law. They filed no proper casework, did not state their case. They just said, we're coming to get the boys. Now, understand, we were hours away from this home. And though we deployed some staff from our headquarters there to the home, they were also at least two hours away, and they would not beat the police. The team that was with us, a group of pastors, was our field office director, our director of investigations, and our director of aftercare. Our most experienced team was the furthest away from those boys. And they said, we have to pray. So we entered into this time of prayer that felt like a battle. Prayer felt like this forceful weapon 
God, please don't let them get our boys. And we were praying out of complete desperation, not out of discipline. And the only contact we had with the home was with Father Matthew. He had never experienced anything like this before. And so he would call us every few minutes and say, they are almost here. They are down the road. And we would always say, Father Matthew, do not let them in. This is against the law. Do not let them in. And he would always respond, okay, I will not let them in. And then the calls just kept coming. They're almost here. They are down the road. They are headed towards the gate. And we could hear this panic behind his voice. And our team's response was always, Father Matthew, do not let them in. We did not have M16s, but we had the power to call upon the almighty God who created the heavens and the earth and who resurrected from the dead. We prayed for a shield. We prayed for flat tires. We prayed for them to get confused. We prayed that they would not get our boys. Finally, Father Matthew called and said, they are here. And the last thing that we heard from Father Matthew was, okay, I will not let them in. God rescued those boys, and now we were desperately praying that he would protect them and keep them safe. And despite this new threat from the police, guess what? Father Matthew, he did not let them in. He did not let them in that day or the next day when they came and tried to do it again. Father Matthew, a great protector. Amen? And, and what of Jessica? Under her leadership, IJM Guatemala has helped to increase convictions of child sexual assault cases by 1,000%. And now she's helping to lead efforts in the Dominican Republic where we're working to rescue young survivors of sex trafficking. And last year, IJM Dominican Republic secured seven convictions of the 14 convictions for the entire country, 50%. Isaiah 117 says to seek justice, rescue the oppressed, defend the orphan, and plead for the widow. And perhaps you've heard the scripture, love conquers fear. The amount of love that Jessica and Father Matthew have for their people, it just moves me. It makes me brave. Moses' mom, Pharaoh's daughter, and Moses' sister, they make me brave. They can make us all brave so that we can step into uncertain circumstances and do whatever we can to fight for their freedom, to be protectors, advocates, and to love sacrificially. So this morning, I'm going to invite you to boldly move into areas that are unfamiliar, uncomfortable, and even a little intimidating so that those who are suffering in our world can experience God's goodness in their life. Each day, we can choose to put on courage, not just to give us character, but to give others life. There's a common tourist stop in Ghana, Elmina Castle. And it, serves as a very, it served as a very important trading post during the Atlantic slave trade. Thousands upon thousands were held underneath this castle under horrific conditions. And there was one vent for the entire castle. 
So this meant many suffocated or died of disease due to the unsanitary conditions. And it also appears that the vent was next to this door, the door to the church. Each Sunday, churchgoers would pass by the stench, the grass and calls for air and for water, hearing the wails and cries of people in utter despair, and choose to walk by and enter a door to go to church and worship God. And I wonder that maybe some of them felt like there was nothing that they could do about it, or maybe some of them felt that it had nothing to do with them at all. Likewise, today, Ghana, it is full of people that love Jesus. It is not uncommon to see Jesus or God on storefronts or boats, yet this is where the exact exploitation happens. And so what about all of us? What did we see today? What did we hear about? What did we smell? And did we make a choice to actually respond in some way? Will you take the moment to stop and hear the cries of the boys on Lake Ghana, on, on Lake Volta in Ghana, when they cry out and when Gabriel says, please go back and get my brother? Or 12-year-old girls locked in brothels. Will we as the church show up for them so that they can experience the goodness of God? Not just proclaiming the love of God, but actually stopping the hand of the abuser by interceding and removing them from abusive situations and from slavery. So today, I would like to invite all of you to partner with us and make sure that we can, the body of Christ can show up, to make sure that we are able to set the slaves free and bring about the rescue. And I'm asking you to join us as a freedom partner. As a freedom partner, you will be asked to join us in the hard work of justice through the hard work of prayer. We are going to ask you to advocate with us on behalf of those like Gabriel and his brother. And we're asked that you would consider giving at least $24 a month so that we can continue to show up every day and our investigators and social workers can actually go back again. See, to be freedom partners, we, we have this comfort of knowing that perhaps the smallest bill of our month can do the greatest number of work of greatest amount of injustice, fighting injustice in the world. Before I came to work for IJM, my husband and I, we were freedom partners. And being a freedom partner was our smallest bill. And we are so thankful that God has allowed us to just be part, a small part of bringing about rescue and restoration. Because the problem of just injustice doesn't go away. So we know that we can't go away either. Our contribution to the work of justice cannot be measured by human instruments. So your prayers or your $24 a month, it may feel like nothing. Just like the boy with five loaves and two fish or the widow that gave her two mites. Well, just let me remind you that when you, we place our little in the big hands of God, he can do more than we can possibly ask or imagine with our gifts. He will make your gifts extraordinary. I'd like to see today that it was the day that Marin Covenant rose up as a church to respond to the invitation to help end slavery in places like Ghana. The last service, I invited at least 40 people to sign up to become a freedom partner because that would cover the cost of two rescue operations. And so the first service, 31 people showed up. So 
if nine more of you signed up to become a Freedom Partner, we would reach our goal of covering two rescue operations. Or if you wanted to do some Christian competition, you can see if you could beat First Service's 31. <laughs> and when I say rescue oper operation, it could mean young boys, and, young boys and girls who are rescued from a brothel or from a cyber sex trafficking ring. Or it could mean, like last week, our largest rescue operation of 550 men, women, and children who are no longer enslaved and are now free. May we not walk by anymore. Seek justice, rescue the oppressed, defend the orphan, and plead for the widow. We have a God that calls us to this mission, but he's with us in this mission, and he transforms us to be more like him through the mission. So let's rescue thousands, protect millions, and prove that justice for the poor is possible. Let's pray. God, we don't want to pass by the opportunities to bring goodness to a hurting world. Help us not to just walk away today. And as we prepare to commune with you and reflect on your advocacy and sacrifice for us, by your grace, share your, our hearts, shape our hearts and decisions and mature us to be protectors, advocates, and givers of sacrificial love. We know the end of slavery. It is possible through Christ alone. Amen.